Welcome to Free and Fair with Frenita and Foley. In this podcast, we break down complicated legal issues leading up to the 2020 U.S. presidential election. I'm Frenita Tolson, Vice Dean for Faculty and Academic Affairs here at University of Southern California Gould School of Law. And I'm Ned Foley, the Director of the Election Law Program at The Ohio State University Moritz College of Law. Before we begin, a quick note. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Hey, Fernita, hello. Hey, how you doing, Ned? I'm good. How are you? Good, good. All this excitement with uh, New Hampshire yesterday, Iowa last week. Yeah, indeed. Uh, the election season is actually now officially underway. What are you thinking? I am thinking that it's going to be a long time between now and November. <laughs> That's <laughs> what I am thinking. Uh, if if the excitement of the last two um, events are any indication, then we have a long road ahead of us. Yeah, truer words have never been spoken. Um, you're thinking about November. I guess I am too. But I also was thinking about uh, the conventions in the summer because the, what's happening with the primaries now relates, at least in my mind, to nominating a candidate in the convention. Uh, and it seems like it's just going to be a long road even to get to the summer before we even think about November. Yes, that's true. Um, part of the interest, I think, that voters have in the last two contests, I think that we can look to that and, and expect that they'll maintain that level of interest all the way through to the summer. And so that's a really exciting part of all of this. Um, Turnout yesterday in New Hampshire surpassed that of 2008 levels, which is really incredible to me. But I think it says a lot about voter interest in this process. Yeah, that's true. Um, thinking about turnout is always important, and, and I was looking at those numbers as well. Uh, and I, I like the positive uh, aspect of, of the notion that voters are going to be interested in this. Um, I worry that the campaigns are going to get ugly, both in the primaries and in the general, and that, that may turn some voters off, but maybe it can stay positive. I also worry that for all the interest that voters have, they may not well understand the rules and the procedures and how they fit together. Um, and I'm glad you mentioned the November election because I think understanding primaries is all about their relationship to the general election. You nominate candidates to get on the ballot for the fall, so there's an interrelationship between what's happening now and what will happen in the fall. But I unfortunately think that's not well understood And what I was wondering whether today we could kind of maybe have primaries 101 or kind of the basics of what the rules and procedures are so that people understand the process as it begins to unfold. I think that that's really important because a lot of people do not understand the pro process outside of their own very small role in it. They know that they go and they cast a ballot in a primary or they go and they um, talk to caucus goers, which are terms that we will flesh out. Um, but beyond that, they don't understand where they fit in the system as a whole. And I think that that's an important conversation to be had. Right. No, right. Every, yes, you have a sense of yourself casting the ballot. And of course, that's important. And as we talked about last time, you do not want to be disenfranchised and we don't want disenfranchisement. But votes exist to be tallied into producing winners. And uh, I was actually troubled by the headlines that I read this morning. Again, it's not a partisan point, but when I saw um, headlines saying that Sanders had won, I'm asking myself, well, what did he actually win? Um, he got 26% of the vote. The next candidate gets 24%. A third candidate gets 20%. In terms of the delegates, and we'll get into all of these technical details as we unfold, there was actually a tie of a nine, the, the delegates split out of New Hampshire was a three-way split of nine, nine, six. So from a legal perspective, it was not a win, it was a tie. Um, and that relates to, again, what was the one event in New Hampshire? Uh, how does it fit into the overall nomination process that leads to nominating a candidate at a convention? So I hope we can you know, unpack the rules, how the rules relate to individual voters when they go on a specific date to cast their own ballot. I think one thing that it does highlight is that the process is both technical and it's also emotional. So in reading those headlines, I was also troubled, but I think we're troubled as legal scholars. I think um, people who are everyday voters, they, they think about things in terms of winners and losers. And if anything, Bernie Sanders won the mandate 
right? And that's people are today calling him the front runner in a way that um, was not part of the story last week. And so while, while he did not uh, win in terms of delegate count, right, he tied with uh, Buttigieg, um, but he still was able to claim the mandate in a way that I, I, I certainly advantaged his campaign. Yes, and I think that relates to what is a really important point about the dynamic interrelationship between the rules and the law of voting and elections and the media narrative and the cultural role that elections play and campaigns play and and the voting process plays. Um, Because after all, very few delegates were at stake uh, in Iowa and New Hampshire. I think, what was it, 24 delegates in in New Hampshire uh, and uh, 41, if I'm remembering right, in Iowa out of what will be a total of 4,000 or about 4,000. So just from a numerical perspective, relatively few votes have now been cast and transferred into delegate, uh, pledged delegates. But in terms of momentum and narrative and uh, bragging rights, if that's the right phrase, that's important. And that relates to the question of why do these states get to go first? Um, there is an order and a tradition behind Iowa and New Hampshire going first. But uh, one question I have is whether that's a fair order and and leads to a fair process for all voters of America as they pick their their president. And obviously, we're focusing again on the presidential election. Some of the rules that we'll be talking about concern primaries in general, but there are special rules and special procedures associated with the distinctive aspect of, of picking a president. Uh, so the the interesting thing is that for a long time, the rules were not necessarily about the voters, and it was more about the candidates. Um, I, I often teach um, primaries in my law and politics class, and I tell the students about um, how this started back in the 1970s, and it Part of the reason Iowa and New Hampshire are, I was the, the first caucus, and, and, and a caucus being a party meeting that's basically open to people who want to affiliate with the party. They get a chance to declare their preferences, and they try to convince fellow caucus goers to support their candidate, um, which is a little bit different from a primary in the sense that you uh, cast a ballot in an election, and, um, and the people entitled to vote in the primary are either aligned with the party or they're independents in some cases. Uh, caucuses take way longer uh, than voting in a primary. So there are some important differences. But um, Iowa is the the first caucus in the primary season, and New Hampshire is the first primary. And so, um, you know, 40-plus years ago, they they really fought to to maintain that position as first. And part of it was because um, Jimmy Carter did really well in Iowa and New Hampshire. He was a relative unknown, Iowa in particular. He was a relative unknown. Um, in 1976, he was polling at 1%, and Iowa basically catapulted him to the top of the field. And so when he ran for re-election in 1980, he made a deal with um, the state party that they would continue to go first, that they would have an ex- exemption where they could have their prime, their caucus earlier than everyone else. And he made the, the same deal with New Hampshire. And so for uh, 40 years, we've been dealing with something that was originally to the benefit of a particular candidate. And I think a lot of a lot of the path dependence that we see or the, the, the difficulty of changing the order comes from the fact that New Hampshire and Iowa consistently fight to stay first, um, <laughs> even though they are not very representative of what the Democratic electorate looks like now um, or even really the country as a whole. But they, they, they are a very powerful lobbying group and they lobby the national organization and they have maintained their position for over four decades. I think path dependency is absolutely the correct term because, as I understand that concept, it means the choice that ends up being made is dependent upon the particular path that takes. So that's a little unsettling because in a democracy, again, we think of we the people making our collective decision about who we want. And so it seems like it should be free will or the free freedom of choice, the, the people as sovereigns get to decide what to do. And yet, if the outcome is path dependent, it means you may end up with a different nominee at the end of the process, depending upon whether Iowa and New Hampshire get to go first or Nevada or South Carolina get to go first. And that feels undemocratic, you know, small d democratic, if somehow the procedure controls the outcome, the voters don't control the outcome. So I I worry that our process... Um, 
is is path. I think it's a reality that's path dependent. I think we have to confront that. Obviously, we're in the midst of a process now already that's underway. We can't change it for this year, but I think we can intelligently think about how the process is working this year and keep an eye on maybe what would be a better process for the future if we don't like the particular path dependency that it's taking this time around. I think that that's right. Um, We have to think about this process in light of the goals of the party, the policy positions that it want to promulgate, that it wants to promulgate, and um, what a democratic administration would look like on a national level. If we think about it from that perspective, just on the Democratic side, because they have the most candidates right now, of course, on the Republican side, you know, President Trump is he has a, a, ch- a challenger or two, but, you know, he's pretty dominant on the Republican side. But if you think about the Democratic side, the fact that there are so many different candidates and so many different options, that highlights the problems, I think, with Iowa and New Hampshire going first. Because on one hand, we can say that choice is never unconstrained. When voters make a choice about which candidates to support, they are necessarily shaped by the rules that uh, operate to aggregate voter preferences. This is true even when we draw districts and we elect members of Congress. You, you are constrained by what district you live in and who's running for that seat. Um, you are constrained by ballot access rules that might limit your favorite candidate from getting on a ballot. So it's not that voter choice is unconstrained. The question is, and I think you raise an important point about it seeming undemocratic, is voter choice constrained in a way that raises democracy concerns? And I think that is true with respect to Iowa and New Hampshire because it's not reflective of what the Democratic Party actually looks like. Um, And I think it's absolutely right that if other states were allowed to go first, then you might end up with a candidate who, a different candidate, who better represents the um, mass of the Democratic Party. Now, can you have a candidate that emerges from Iowa and New Hampshire that is representative of the party? Absolutely. So it's not that... um, having Iowa and New Hampshire go first means that the outcome will be bad. But for every, you know, Barack Obama who won Iowa in 2008, you have many more individuals who emerge from Iowa victorious who either don't secure the nomination, lose in a general, or are not representative of the party. Right. No, true. Um, And I'm glad you mentioned, you know, the sort of asymmetry this year between the Republican side of things and the Democratic side of things. As you correctly point out, the Democratic nomination is very competitive and the Republican nomination isn't. Um, What I think is interesting and important from an election law and structural perspective is in some ways what's happening on the Democratic side this year is looking a little similar to what happened on the Republican side four years ago. Now, on the Democratic side, four years ago, there was competition between Hillary Clinton and Bernie Sanders, no doubt about it, but it was a confined competition. The Republicans had an umpteen number of candidates, around 20, uh, not unlike what the Democrats have now. Um, And it led to something of a divide and conquer strategy where Trump emerged as the winner of the Republican nomination four years ago without really majority support within his own party. He had plurality support, meaning he was the leader um, first among the field. Um, and and he obviously got the party nomination. Uh, but it w- But there was some sense that the anti-Trump part of the Republican Party in 2016 couldn't coalesce around anybody else. There was Marco Rubio. There was uh, Jeb Bush for a while. There was John Kasich, uh, there was Ted Cruz, and but they couldn't coalesce. And I'm not making, again, a partisan point or trying to play favorites, but I just observationally, you could argue that, again, this is very early in the process. We only have um, Iowa and New Hampshire behind us, but something of a similar dynamic arguably is happening this year on the Democratic side with uh, Bernie Sanders kind of solidifying uh, a position uh, on the so-called left side of the Democratic Party and the centrists uh, not consolidating that there are multiples of, of them kind of analogous to the multiples that, that were more in the center of the the Republican Party. And, and for scholars who are 
have been reading the literature on polarization and the ways in which primaries tend to move politics towards the ends of the spectrum instead of the middle, um, you at least have to ask the question whether our system as it exists is well structured to serve the needs of the electorate as a whole. Because going back to the point about what's the relationship between the primaries and the general election, you know, is there a good interaction both on the Republican side four years ago and on the Democratic side now that the, the primaries are doing their job of putting on the table in November the candidates that make sense for the general election? So that's I'm, I'm watching what's happening unfold, worried about our system as a whole. So I, I agree, but I do have a, a somewhat provocative point, and I, I, I hope it's not provocative, but I suspect it might be. What happened four years ago on the Republican side where um, voters were not unable to coalesce behind an alternative to Donald Trump? And Donald Trump got, Trump got the nomination, and he went on to become president. Um, in some ways, that process played out exactly like it should have because it operated within the framework of the rules that the Republican Party had laid out to select their standard bearer, right? This was their, their way of selecting their presidential nominee. Um, he complied with that, and he got the nomination. Now, he might have gotten the nomination to the dismay of many of the um, Republican Party officials, um, elected Republicans, uh, many of the rank-and-file Republican Party members, but he got the nomination through the framework of the Republican Party. Um, on the Democratic side, I think we, we will see a similar test, right? If Bernie Sanders is able to get um, a, su a sufficient amount of delegates where the uh, party faithful, the more moderate Democrats or even more conservative Democrats, I, I say that term and I'm not even sure that's a thing anymore, but I say it anyway. Mm -hmm. um, if they will actually uh, allow him to get the nomination if he gets enough delegates within the, the framework of the, of the democratic system, right? Because um, there was some chatter about uh, elites within the party trying to figure out how to stop him if he does get momentum and he does secure a lot of delegates. And I think the Democratic Party is facing a similar test as the Republican Party faced four years ago um, at the prospect of, of um, selecting a standard bearer who did not, in the view of some Republicans, reflect where the party was at. Um, so I, for the Democratic Party, it remains to be seen. But I do think that um, by the time we get to the convention this summer, we'll have a clear sense of whether or not the, the, the whole primary process is actually about the voters, right? Because if he has enough delegates, then he arguably should get the nomination. Or if it's about other goals that maybe voters aren't fully aware of. Maybe it's about, you know, governance. Maybe it's about the, the party's policy positions. Maybe it's not just about selecting a candidate. And if that's true, then it is possible that we may see a clash between the Democratic voters in the electorate and the Democratic elites. Yeah, that's all true. And, and I'm glad you clarified the point that Trump did win playing by the rules. I don't disagree with that. I think that's true both with respect to his winning the Republican nomination and his winning the general election. I do think that calls into question, are the rules good rules? Again, not this isn't an anti-Trump statement in particular. It's, it's, it's a question about designing electoral systems to reflect, again, small d democratic values of popular sovereignty voter choice. And there is this fundamental question about w whether winners should have to reach a majority of the votes to, to win 50% plus one, re reflecting more than the opposition, or whether just coming in first in a multi-field uh, event is enough, and that's a plurality winner, the technical term, but a plurality winner could be at 40%, uh, 45%, 35%, again, depending upon the field and how it's split. I know we're hopefully going to do a different uh, episode of our podcast in the future focused on the, the arcane rules of the Electoral College and, and, and presidential elections from that perspective, so I don't want to jump too far ahead, but um, I think there is a relationship between what we're talking about today, about a, a, a sensible primary system that gives um, voters the choice that they want for their party nomination, and then a sensible general election. And this debate between plurality winners and majority winners uh, can take place in both contexts. And just to finish up on the point about Trump, I, I think it's objectively accurate looking at the numbers to say that Trump succeeded by first being a plurality winner under the rules. 
uh, as they worked for the Republican nomination, uh, not capturing majority votes within his party, but winning because of a plurality. And then he does something similar in the general election in the critical battleground states of Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and others. And so he ends up in the White House without the mandate of being a majority winner at, at either the nomination stage or the general election. And that feels inconsistent in some ways with, again, small d democracy. Now, looking at it, you know, from this year, again, we could have something similar play out on the on the Democratic side. You could, but but here's where I think it might be useful. Frida, tell me if if I'm right about this. Does it make sense to take a step back and just maybe explain for our listeners kind of what the rules, the basic rules are to win? the nomination. And now we'll focus on the Democratic Party because that's where the competition is now. And, and to explain how amassing delegates in Iowa and New Hampshire and in, you know Nevada, South Carolina, Super Tuesday, all the way to the end of the primary calendar takes you to the convention. And what does it mean to win a nomination? Would, would going through the basics of that, uh, again, kind of primary 101 be useful at this point? Yes, that's that's I think that makes sense. Uh, before you get into the the nitty gritty, can I respond to your point about majoritarianism? Oh, absolutely. Um, I, th- I think it's a really, really important point about um, President Trump winning the election and not really having a mandate because he was a plurality winner and not a majoritarian, uh, not a majority winner. Um, it's an important point in a sense because I wonder what the cost of majoritarianism is. Um, it seems. As if, at least as as if, as the given the way that you laid out the argument, that it matters um, for mandate purposes for the president having a sense of legitimacy, legitimacy to be a majoritarian president, right? That a majority of the voters, even I, I assume at the primary stage, support you, and you move on to the general election, and you get further legitimacy if you win the election through majority um, support. So. That's my understanding of what you're saying, that major, the, having a majority winner matters at both stages of the process. Um, but I wonder if that's true, because at the primary stage, there are values other than just winning an, an election and having a mandate that I wonder, if we do we lose sight of that if we focus just on selecting someone who's a majority winner? Um, at the primary stage, there is a, an important conversation happening. It happened on the Republican side four years ago. It's happening on the Democratic side now about who the party is and where they want to be in the future. Um, so the Republicans four years ago, um, they were having a conversation about where they wanted to be as a party. Where are we on immigration? Um, where are we on uh, foreign policy? Where are we on domestic issues? Who are we? Um, and Donald Trump emerged from that process and as we see with the recent impeachment proceedings, the party has coalesced behind him, right? So his position, he is, is it is effectively Donald Trump's Republican Party, which is, a, a, I think, a different party than that which existed four years ago. But the, the primary was the opportunity for the party to commit to a certain vision of who the Republican Party is. I think we'll see something similar on the Democratic side. And the primary is an important forum for having that conversation, even if the result is someone emerging from that process with a plurality of the votes, right? Because it is also a forum for dissent and not just about electing a nominee. Um, Whereas if we just focus on majoritarianism, um, I think that it stifles dissent, right? Because at that point, we're just thinking about, well, who can get to 50% plus one? And it might be to the exclusion of other values that we think emerge from the primary process. That's interesting. I mean, I, I want to think about that some more. Um, those are important thoughts. Uh, and maybe that's where general elections and primaries are a little bit different, perhaps, from each other. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, one question about primaries is, do they belong to the party or do they belong to the government? Or are they some kind of hybrid? And there's been some Frankly, I think schizophrenia sort of in the Supreme Court, or at least tension, maybe a more polite way of talking about it, uh, the jurisprudence is a little unclear. There's case law that explains why uh, primaries aren't exclusively private sector events because the government runs them. That's what's different in one thing between a caucus and a primary, as you were saying. Caucuses are exclusively party-controlled. Uh, primaries are run by the government to pick party winners, but but it is the part the government's officials and the government's apparatus of counting ballots and printing ballots that 
that does primaries. Um, and the so-called white primary cases from the Supreme Court um, that disallowed racial discrimination in primaries, very important precedents, sets the point that they're not just exclusive private sector entities. They're integral parts of the overall electoral process. On the other hand, we've got some more recent case law from the Supreme Court, some out of California, saying that, wait a second, parties are, are First Amendment entities that get to define themselves and the government can't intrude on their internal operations. And you know, I tell my students, I don't know what you tell your students about those cases, I tell my students that you, they cannot put them all together into a coherent whole. There's just too much tension there for coherence. Well, I tell my students race is different, right? The white primary cases are race cases. That's the only way to make sense of them in this context. Otherwise, I agree. There's no way of, if we're thinking about this in terms of political party regulation by the Supreme Court, there's no coherence. Um, you have yeah. to spin off the white primary cases as kind of their own thing. And and that's how I, uh, maybe my coherence is artificial, <laughs> but but I do try to, to try to make sense of it by viewing those as race cases. Um, but I, the flip side of that is it's really difficult to conceptualize how to think about them as precedent, though. Yes, they're race cases, but they also say something very important about the role of the primary in our system. And you can't put the cases to the side because uh, because they also deal with race. You you do have to try to find some way of meaningfully incorporating them into our understanding of the role that the primary is supposed to have in our system. Uh, and that's why the hybrid framework, you're, you're absolutely right. We do at times think about political parties as having this hybrid function. They are both private and public. But it's, it's, that's difficult for me conceptually. Um, sometimes I, I try to think about it in terms of function. Well, if the, the party is choosing its uh, candidate, then maybe the state should leave them alone. But then again, why is the state paying for primaries if the state is leaving them alone? You know, And so it's just... There is an incoherence that is sometimes difficult to navigate, um, but I do think that in light of our very polarized system, we do need a jurisprudence that is more realistic with what is happening on the ground. Um, so our the current nature of the jurisprudence um, treats parties as if they are not the government, and they are effectively the government, especially if you're talking about the two major parties. Um, so when there's uh, events that happen uh, like those over the past week where um, in Iowa, you know, we didn't know who won and the media narrative kind of got out of control, it's actually not weird for us not to know who won at the end of the night if they're counting ballots. Uh, but nonetheless, it got a, a really bad reputation. There was whispers of, of wrongdoing. and But... No one was making a distinction as to, you know, bad wrongdoing by the party versus wrongdoing by the government, right? We're, we're all having a conversation about whether Iowa should continue to go first and how this is reflective of the Democratic primary. But people are not thinking about this as private. People are thinking about this as to what extent has this cast doubts and aspirations on the legitimacy of our political system because things started off really badly in Iowa. Right. They don't care that what happened in Iowa was run by the Iowa Democratic Party. Right. They are thinking about it in terms of government functions. Yet our jurisprudence would think about this as um, incompetence by a private entity. Right. And it's just not really reflective of what's going on and also how people are perceiving the system. Right. No, absolutely. And, um, you know, I hope we come back to the delayed count or non-count on election night in Iowa, maybe uh, in another episode, because that's going to affect not just the caucuses, but the issue of how you count absentee ballots. I suspect on Super Tuesday in California, um, we may not know the result on election night. And so that's a topic I think we should come come back to. Um, uh, and I absolutely agree with your sense of what people's expectations are. They don't think of a caucus as a party event. They think of it as a different way to do a primary, maybe not as good a way, but they think of it as, a, as the first step in the electoral process. Uh, but, but that means I want to push back a little bit on, on your analysis of the white primary cases as just being separate because they're about race. Because another part of the jurisprudence says that the government can insist, if the government wants to, that a party use a primary instead of a caucus. And that makes sense on the um, uh, 
expectations that you announce that the public has, that it is really the first stage of a two-stage process because then the government can set the rules. But if this was truly just the prime, um, the party's own uh, internal decision-making for choosing its nominee, then you would think the party would get to choose whether it preferred a caucus to a primary because that's part of its own self-definition. So I can only explain that the government gets to dictate the method of choice. You must use a primary. Obviously, Ohio, um, Iowa didn't insist upon that. That's why they. But, but if if the government says you must use a primary, the party has to yield. So in that sense, I see the government as in control. I don't disagree with that. I, you know, one of the interesting things about our hybrid system is the fact that the government has a lot of say over dis- different aspects. And there is a lack of coherence over what remains within the uh, the decision-making of the party versus what the government has control over. So I, I don't necessarily disagree about that point. But I do think it, to, to make the point, to push the point even further, why not just treat parties as, as government entities? Why even have this competing sense that they are private associations with private rights that we are bound to respect when they have such outsized influence and control over the actual government? The government that's telling them to have a primary, oftentimes it's, you know, people from the same party. <laughs> um, there are There's a lot of synergy there. And sometimes it's, it's, it's uh, you know, an opposing party, and that might raise issues in and of itself. But generally speaking, this conception of parties as these private associations that have First Amendment rights like people, it's, it's nonsensical. Yeah, I don't know that I would go that far. I, and I, Come with I me, like... Ned. Come with me. <laughs> well, let me um, try out an idea and see what you think of it. I, I've been toying with this idea that we should use sports as an analogy. And, and, and thinking about the relationship to, of primaries to the general election, I think about the Olympics or maybe the um, NCAA, you know, track meet kind of competition. And that, so, so but let's focus on the Olympics. So, the, you know, the Summer Olympics, let's say, where you have your swim meets and your track meets, um, that's the main event. That's like the general election. And, of course, the International Olympic Committee gets to set the rules of competition for that. But then the, each nation, you know, sends a team to the, to the main event but the, the nations don't get to completely set the rules of their own preliminary competitions. The IOC gets to say, hey, wait a second, if you want to send a team to the Olympics, your preliminary competition has to meet certain standards for it to make sense for it to be a preliminary competition. And to go back to a point that you made about what parties do, parties put candidates on the ballot. When it's the government's ballot, it seems to me the government gets to say, what are the rules for getting on our ballot? Because that doesn't belong to the party. So in that sense, it seems it's a government function. On the other hand, I do think parties, if they play by the government's rules, are still allowed to control certain things about their own identity. So again, their party platform, their ideology, their voice, maybe even their endorsements about which of their own candidates is their own internal preferences. I think they should have First Amendment rights with respect to that. But they can't necessarily dictate how the government runs the electoral process itself. That's the distinction that I would try to make as we make sense of the jurisprudence and and make sense of the system. What do you think? So... I think I agree with that, um, but I do worry because uh, if I understand your comments correctly, um, you are concerned about government action that might have the effect of diluting a brand, right? So if if the government requires them to take uh, political parties to take any steps that could undermine their ideology, that could undermine their brand as the Republican Party or Democratic Party, you would have a problem with that. Well, I don't know if I'd agree with that phraseology. And, and I guess what, what most interests me about our conversation is just how confusing this topic is. Again, I, I wish democracy were simple so that citizens could easily understand it. I tell my students that. It troubles me that you and I, as people who teach in this area, are stumbling a little bit over terminology and ideas and I don't really think it's our fault. I think it's the fault of the law. I think the jurisprudence, for reasons we were talking about earlier, has caused conceptual 
confusion and lack of clarity over what parties are, how they work in the primary system. Um, and hopefully, whether we finish up today or we need some more time as this primary series unfolds, again, maybe we can help our listeners and the public understand because m my philosophy here is that the voters should be able to understand their own elections because that's empowerment. Uh, and and when it's confusing, that worries me. And, and so when you ask me, you know, how much autonomy parties should have under the First Amendment and we stumble in thinking about that, again, that that worries me. So if I could just um, do a little bit of history and then try to um, answer your question, you, are you okay with that? Yes, I'm okay. And I appreciate the stumble. I, <laughs> I you know, I, I haven't met three election law scholars that think the same about this issue. So I agree completely. <laughs> um, so again, with the, with the idea in mind that primaries exist as a stepping stone to the general election, and we were talking. We we got in, onto this train of thought talking about the role of majority rule and whether majority majority rule can be stifling or in some ways problematic. And of course, in a constitutional democracy, you always have to worry about majority rule being the tyranny of the majority, and we don't want that. And we want good constitutional structures. But you know, with that in mind, um, again. In looking ahead to November, you know, there's going to be a, a, a Democrat on the ballot and Trump is going to be on the ballot as the Republican nominee. And of course, there are going to be other uh, smaller parties like the Libertarian Party and the Green Party. And at some point down the road, we'll have to talk about the relationship of independent candidates and third parties to the totality of the system and its rationality and coherence as a whole. But, but bracketing that for a second and focusing again just on the Democratic Party, trying to choose a nominee to be on the November ballot, uh, to go up against Trump. Um, we, part of the, the struggle of understanding the process is that a process has evolved in a complicated way historically. So it's not the product of any architect's design, right? We, we've historically ended up with a system that was nobody's design. In the beginning of the country, um, it was definitely the party's own decision, you know, the, the so-called smoke-filled rooms, right? The parties com completely controlled the process. There weren't anything called primaries. Then the progressive era gave us the first version of primaries, which were meant to be these preliminary elections, but it was kind of um, a halfway measure. Then, you know, and this is a treating a whole lot of history very quickly. But 1968 and 1972, I think you mentioned the Gov McGovern Commission earlier on in, in our conversation, um, there was a sense that the, the system really broke down in the, in the 1968 conventions and the, the process wasn't fair to voters and there was too much party control and party elite control. So both parties, starting with the Democrats but the Republicans too, tried to open it up to much more voter choice. So now we, we're looking at a system Again, going back to the Republicans in 2016 and the Democrats now, where the voters have all this role to play in casting ballots, but it may be somewhat chaotic vis-a-vis -vis the party's decision at their convention about who their nominee is going to be to get on that November ballot. And, and to pick up on a point you said a little while ago, the Democrats in this year may be in for a real um, internal uh, fight, or that may be too strong a word, or confusion or discussion or about what to do, because the current rule as a matter of rule is a candidate needs to win 50% of all the delegates that are earned as a result of all these primaries in order to win the nomination on the first ballot at the convention. Uh, and if they don't, then you have what sometimes is called a brokered convention. And I know journalists and pundits like to talk about brokered conventions and they don't – they usually don't happen. But again, and it's very early after Iowa and, and New Hampshire, but it's not unrealistic to start thinking about a scenario in which Bernie Sanders has the lead but not 50 percent. And you were talking about, you know, what was the number that – Bernie Sanders might have to need for for the party to kind of rally around him and give it to him, even though he doesn't have 50%. And different 
Democrats might have different answers to that very question and different voters who don't necessarily think of themselves as, you know, diehard party Democrats but want to participate in the process may also have answers. And New Hampshire let independents vote. Each you know, state has its own rules on some of this stuff. And so it's a little bit confusing to figure out what the result should be if there is fracture within the Democratic Party, where Bernie Sanders has, say, 35 percent of the delegates or 40 percent of the delegates, and the next runner-up has, you know, maybe 5 percent less but is close. How close does it have to be? Normally, we like law and we like election laws to be clear so that there's no disagreement as to what the rule is. In this case, we have a clear rule. You have to win 50 percent, and if you don't, the delegates at the convention get to negotiate. But the voters won't like it, I don't think, if they see the delegates choosing the nominee because they think we've evolved into a system where the voters get to pick the nominee. So I think we could get, um, as, the, as the process unfolds past Super Tuesday and beyond, we, get, we may get a real clash between what the rules are and what the public expectations are. And that, that worries me. I, you know, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, what's interesting to me is um, this sense of maybe this is the problem with representative government in, in a smaller form. Uh, you know how we talk about democracy and then small d democracy? One thing we can think about with the primary process is um, and when we think about our main government as Republican in form and then um, the primary process is like a smaller type of Republican process um, in the sense that maybe voters think when they cast a ballot or when they go caucus that they're doing something that's entirely different from what the system is actually providing them with. Um, and so this is a, a form of representation that is um, that sort of opens the door for voter apathy and dissension after the convention if it goes in a way that a lot of voters don't think it should go, right? So if the delegates, so voters are, are basically selecting delegates. And so if the delegates go and they choose someone who the voters didn't initially support, then it causes all these problems. But I think part of it is, is that voters don't realize that these are their representatives in some sense, right? We are empowering them when we vote in primaries to go and negotiate on our behalf in the event of a, a, a broker convention. And so I think uh, that is a, a small version of the larger problems of representative democracy, right? Um, we see this in, in government when we have uh, extremely gerrymandered districts and voters are making choices that are then not reflected in governance, right? And so, um, but, but oddly enough, I can't necessarily think of a better way to do it, um, just in, in a sense of if this is the system that we have, and delegates go and, and you have a candidate who's not able to garner a 50% plus one majority, um, then negotiation seems like it's inevitable. I don't know, have you given us any thoughts in terms of is there a better way of, 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 of having a system that better reflects voter preferences? Uh, great question. I mean, I'm a fan of something called ranked choice voting. Uh, which is used in a couple of places um, and and more uh, as the concept is gaining some uh, ascendancy. I think the New York Times even had an article this week about ranked choice voting is hot. Some of our um, listeners may know the term and some of them may not. And maybe since we probably have to wrap up fairly soon for today, maybe we could devote a session on what that means and how it might be different from our current system. But really quickly, just to, to answer your question, what ranked choice do, voting would do would allow voters to get a ballot that has three or more candidates on it. So think, imagine a ballot that had Bernie Sanders and Trump and one of these moderates that is competing for the moderate lane of the Democratic Party, whether it's Buttigieg or Klobuchar or Biden or, or Bloomberg. Um, or you could even put them all on the ballot because ranked choice voting can can handle a lot of uh, voter uh, excuse me of candidates, um, and the voters get the option they can pick only one if they want to and say I only like Trump or I only like Sanders that that's it, but you give the voters an option to say no you can rank a second choice or a third choice if you want to, and computers today mathematically can calculate majority winners by eliminating the least popular candidate first, and then reallocating the votes according to those second and third rankings. Again, we don't have to get into the weeds on the details in this today. Um, and so 
ranked choice voting might be something that would be a better way to capture voter preferences. It's not that different conceptually. It's a little bit. But, you know, California has experimented with this top two primary system that uh, for governor's races, for U.S. Senate races. doesn't use it for president because that's complicated. But um, I think of the top two primary system that California has as something like a runoff because, you know, you have a ton of candidates at the beginning and the top two go to the second round. Some places call a second round a runoff. California calls it its general election after the, the, the because it's phase two after the top two primary. Either way, the concept there is trying to get to that majority winner after you had a crowded field to begin with. Ranked choice voting is a different methodology aimed at the same goal, I think. Uh, and so it probably makes sense for us down the road to talk about these different electoral systems and see what their attributes are pro and con in terms of voter choice and 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 um, but in terms of I want to come back to your point about path dependency because I think it ties into this um, if you if you can understand my concept of a three-way race between Sanders Trump and moderate whoever that moderate is there's two different ways for an electoral system to try to answer who should be the winner when there's that three-way race. One way would be a, a, a government-run electoral process that picks one winner out of the three candidates and either does it using a runoff like California has for its top two system or this ranked choice ballot. But either way, you got three candidates. We only can have one winner. How do we do that? But it's a government electoral system and the candidates have to play it by the, that rule. Um, and I don't know who the winner would be, but, but we'd have an answer as to who the voters wanted. If the party gets to make, under our current system, what we've decided that we want to do is divide that choice in two stages. And so the Democrats are going to be choosing between Sanders and a moderate and giving that choice to the general election and the general voters um, in November. And, but the general electorate won't have participated in the Democratic Party's internal choice. Um, what if the Democrats choose between Sanders and moderate in a way that's different from what the the public as a whole would have chosen if they had all three options on the table. Um, that's where path dependency can really make a difference in our final outcome. Um, and again, without being partisan, it could be that because the Democrats choose Sanders internally, you get a general election, Trump versus Sanders, public chooses Trump. If there had been a three-way race, you know, Trump Sanders moderate, maybe the moderate would have won. I worry about the incoherence of our system given the options as they exist at the moment. Um, agreed. And although there, as you mentioned, there are a lot of ways to do this. Um, and sometimes it's hard to think about what would be more successful, though, because as you mentioned, we've done it this way for a long time, right? And so it's, it's very difficult to, to envision change and what that might look like and how that changes the incentive structure. But one thing I can say for sure in thinking about your ranked choice voting proposal is that it does answer the concern that a lot of voters have about feeling like their vote doesn't count, right? Because even if your first choice winner doesn't uh, succeed, your second choice winner might, right? And so it, it does, and I think that's a huge problem in our system because if you look at voter turnout nationally, it's, it's, it's extremely low. Um, we, we are uh, lowest among uh, many of the mature democracies, right? So I think ranked choice voting could be a way of addressing a core concern that many voters have about their vote not counting. Even if, you know, so I, I have some thoughts uh, for maybe a later po podcast about whether it uh, realigns the incentive structure in our system in a way that might not always be good. Uh, but I do think the the probably among its benefits is the fact that it, a voter will feel like their vote matters. Yeah, no, that's a nice point. So I'm thinking, Fernanda, that maybe we should um, wrap up for today. I think once again we put a lot of ideas on the on the table. I, I think we've um, 
cause the conversation to realize there's lots of variables, lots of moving parts. Um, if we've confused people, I hope I can say, hey, stick with us because the confusion is not their fault. It's, it's that the system is confusing, um, and hopefully it'll take more than one episode to, uh, to make some sense of it or at least to get more clarity on it. But democracy is important, so it's worth the investment, to, I think, to understand the system. I, again, I worry that um, going back to your, your last point there, I mean, I think if voters feel like they try to participate but the system fails them, that's bad, right? I mean, in other words, if they feel like, oh, I tried to participate but the system just, you know, messed it all up, that turns people off. So I, I really hope we don't end up that way. Uh, and it, again, we're early in the process, so maybe we should uh, see what the next set of uh, caucuses and you know, Nevada has a caucus, South Carolina has a primary. We'll have more data to think about. We've got more other topics to address. Um, are there any um, thoughts you want to end with today, just to wrap up today's conversation? No, I think that this was an important step forward in thinking about um, at least trying to clarify for our listeners uh, the distinction between a primary and a caucus and uh, how the system works and um, the fact that the incoherence is a built-in part of the system, right? It's a feature. It's not a bug. And uh, on some level, in order to understand what is going on, you have to embrace that in a way that might be uncomfortable for some people. But if you're interested in thinking about our political system beyond the, the simple act of casting a ballot, then uh, on some level, you have to accept that uh, there are changes that need to be made. And um, in order to, to, to make it better, you have to have some uh, understanding of how the system currently works. Right, right. And if I could just... Um leave our listeners, as they watch the process unfold, I guess I would recommend, you know, um, keeping an eye on that delegate count, not just the vote totals, because it is the delegate count, which are the rules. Again, even if there's going to be some background political discussions about what to do, the delegate math is important. And in that regard, I think Super Tuesday is going to be really super this year, super uh, meaning just consequential. Um, California is part of Super Tuesday, so is Texas. I'll, uh, I think a quarter of all delegates are going to be awarded on Super Tuesday. It comes very fast after South Carolina. And so I think it's going to shape the race very significantly. You know, I think the candidates understand that, and and hopefully the voters can can understand that as they, you know, listen to the news and watch the news and, and so forth. So, yes, we have Nevada and South Carolina, but Super Tuesday is coming really fast afterwards, and I think it's, um, it's, it's really big in terms of its importance this year. So that's a wrap, I think, for today. Um, see you next time, Fernita. Take care, Ned. Thanks.